Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This is the reading of God's word. And for reading the, the one verse, um, did him a favor. I really wanted to talk about the whole chapter, but it's just too long. And so really, verse 1, the famous verse that many of you have heard, uh, really is the subheading or the I guess you could say the heading of the whole chapter uh, with regards to not just what faith is, uh, but what hope is. And uh, that's what we're looking at here as we look in this series, Living with Hope. We started it last week, and we're looking at it a little more carefully today. Here in our passage, in our verse, um, you have to remember the book of Hebrews, not sure who wrote it, but the author of Hebrews, his intended audience is a group of people who were Christians for a long time, But now, after a while, because of their circumstances, because of how hard it was in their situation, even just to be a Christian, because of persecution, these people were tempted um, to fall away. They They were in danger of drifting or hardening or, I guess, dulling in, in their faith. They were tempted to kind of give up on Christianity and go back to what they knew, which was Judaism, right, to leave Jesus and go back to Judaism, especially when they were being persecuted. Life was hard. Um, you know, economically, it was hard. Circumstantially, it was hard. Medical situation was probably really bad. Um, it was still a lot of persecution just for their faith. And so the whole book of Hebrews is a letter about perseverance, perseverance in the face of life that seems hopeless. The author of Hebrews wants to encourage his readers to persevere And in chapter 11, the way he encourages us to do this is he wants us to persevere in whatever circumstance we find ourselves with hope. So Hebrews 11.1, he says to the people here in, in, in his audience, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And if you were to keep reading this whole chapter then from Genesis to Joshua, He highlights the lives of individuals who lived, not just by faith, not faithfully, but who lived with hope. People like Abel, people like Enoch, people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Moses, right? These Bible people that we know, that we're familiar with, these people of faith, even they needed hope. Even they struggled. They had questions about their faith. And so the author of Hebrews begins going down this list of people, giving his audience examples of people in similar situations. How did they persevere? And they persevered, all of them, with some kind of hope. Two things I want to talk about, and then one application. Two things. Why we need hope today. Okay, We kind of did try and define what hope was last week. But this week, why do we need hope? And then secondly, how do we get it? And then thirdly, uh, practically or more, more, I guess, application-wise, how do we make that real? Okay? Why do we need hope? How do we get it? How do we make it real in our lives? Why do we need hope? Uh, Just follow with me this. You know, if you prepare a sermon, I I know I prepare well when I let what I write down marinate, so to speak, in my heart and my mind. Uh, to kind of sink in deeply, and I know. Unfortunately, I, I didn't get enough time to do that this, this week, but uh, nevertheless, let's look at this carefully and see how it goes. Why we need hope. Think about our culture, what we live in today. Think about your situation. You know, outside, maybe your life. Maybe your life is doing well, but watch the news, right? Hear what people are talking about. The statistics 
they're true today, is that depression and suicide are on the rise, especially in our country, have been climbing past 10 to 15 years across the nation. Did you know that? Teenagers, 70% up suicide. Girls, 10 to 14 years old, over the last 15 years, 300% on the rise. 300%. And the country overall, about 30 to 40% over the last 10 years, depression and suicide have increased. And some statisticians want to explain this away by saying, well, it's different. The numbers increase because today there's less stigma to go to a doctor. And so we're going to see these numbers increase, but they were always there. They just didn't go to the doctor. They didn't go to the psychiatrist. They didn't go to counseling or whatever the case. 20 years ago in my other church, I tried starting a counseling ministry for the church. And when we had a few things set up, people wouldn't come. You know why? Because when we said the word counseling, it was like, I'm not that crazy. Now it's completely different. Now the word counseling is everywhere, not just in church, but outside. There are an amazing number of college students who are actually going to mental health in their school. Did you know that? It's crazy how things have come up. And I don't think it could just be explained away by the fact that there's less stigma to go to a doctor. Other people say, why is this number the case? Why is our country going through some of this? And some people say, well, it's the economy. The economy is not so good. And so in every category, gender, race, and age, suicide rates are up because the situation of just making life was just so hard and difficult. And it's true. Every category, every gender, every age, every race, those rates are up. And it's true. Economy may have a factor. It is not doing very well today, is it? But there's one category of people in the world where it's the very opposite. It's not... It's not uh, Going up, actually, the rate is going down. Guess what that is? African-American men in Africa, right? The only rate that are actually suicide, depression, all these things are actually going down. If there's any person in this world that's struggling with economy, it must be them, right? It could be them, but it shows that that's not the case. Their rates are decreasing. You look at our media in this country, you look at the movies, how many movies are about zombies, right? How many movies do you want to see about catastrophic disasters? How many movies about dystopian futures did you watch? Even one of the best Marvel movies there ever was is what? End Game, right? More and more our media is talking about what the future might hold, and the future looks bleak. It's scary. There's a fear that's filling up, not just in these stories, but in our lives about what the future might hope. Look at birth rates. Do you know what country has the lowest birth rate in the world? South Korea. Depending on which statistics you read, one or two. South Korea. You know what the reason is, they say? Oh, it's economic. Hard to have a family. But again, Do you know where the highest birth rates are in the world? (laughs) Africa, Niger, Angola, Mali, Uganda, all in the top 10. Is their economy better or worse? I have someone who's uh, young and married, healthy, and uh, been married for at least five years, and say, hey, are you guys ever going to have children? You know what they said? I don't want to have children. Why? Why not? And the answer was this. Why would I want to bring new life 
into a world that's just so messed up. Prominent sociologist in Harvard said this, more hope, more children. Less hope, less children. That's what he says. And last but not least, and this is what we need to talk about. I know it sounds a little morbid. Last but not least, no matter what you've been through, no matter what you're going through, no matter what the culture is going through, there's death. And I think in our culture especially, we don't know how to handle it. In every other culture in the world, suffering and death is a part of life, everyday life. In our culture, if something ever happens, we freak out. We don't know how to handle it. There's a fear of death like never before. Now, let's think about this, okay? I don't know when the last time you really thought about dying, but the honest answer is I don't think we really think about it enough, not deeply enough, not the implications of what that means. If death is the end of everything, right? If there's no more after death, what does it matter what you do in this life? Make the world a better place, try and do good to people. No one's going to remember you a thousand years from now. And on the flip side, what does it matter what evil is there in the world? You're a bad person. You did this wrong. Who cares what evil is when in a thousand years you're not even going to be around? No one's going to care who, what you did. If death is death, then that's the end of it. And I don't think we think about it enough. Once in a while, well, yeah, one day, you know, one day. But I think we don't think about the implications of what that really means. Two reasons for this. First, I think we all have this thing where we tend to think, whether we don't know it or not, that time is on our side. Time's on our side. We think that we have more time than we do. And it's one of the main reasons why you're so good at procrastinating. You think you have more time than you do. Second reason is this. According to the Mayo Clinic, for example, according to the Mayo Clinic or Mayo Clinic, less than 3% of Americans live a healthy lifestyle. Less than 3%. A healthy person does four things, according to this uh, article in, uh, by the Mayo Clinic. A person who exercises, a person who eats a healthy diet, a person who keeps a healthy weight, and a person who doesn't smoke. 3%, only 3% of all Americans do all four of those things. And I think we are all aware of some of these things. I should go on a diet, I should exercise more, I should eat better, right? But we don't. Why? Because change is hard. I've got time. I'll do it later. And the last thing I think we don't think about death enough is this. There's an aspect in our lives that keeps us from changing, and that is, well, nobody else is either. Right? Nobody else is either. We're pack kind of people. Why think about death? Nobody else is thinking about death. Why think about health? Why think about all doing all these things that hardly anyone around me is doing the same thing? So we live in a fast-paced performance-based culture that puts many demands of us. Here's what we think. There's a script, I think, that we think we're supposed to live out. Not only are we supposed to get healthy, look great, and all that stuff, but you're supposed to go to school. You're supposed to go to college. You're supposed to get a fulfilling job. You're supposed to buy your dream house, then find the love of your life, then have kids, then make money, then get rich, then take Instagram-worthy vacations, and then be happy. And guess what? My... My guess is, I don't know if anyone here could check all of those boxes. It may not happen in your life. 
And yet the message is still coming to us from so many different places, every blog, billboard, every Netflix show. And so what happens is that the typical American is that we get so focused on finding life right here and now on earth that we forget that our time on earth is actually unbelievably short. And we forget. We forget because nobody else around us remembers because we're all staring at the dirt of the earth together and no one is looking up at heaven. So we don't like talking about it. But let's think it through. If death is the end of everything and there is nothing more, shouldn't that make us do some serious reflection on how we're living now? How does anything then mean anything? If death really is the end of it, what is the point of your life? Is it pointless? If not, why not? You've got to answer that question. All of us have to answer that question, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're a different culture or not. Every culture has to answer this question. Does anything we do have meaning or purpose or significance? If you say yes, how? In a book called uh, The Real American Dream, A Meditation of Hope, um, written by a professor named Andrew Del Banco, uh, wrote this book. Actually, there were lectures he was doing while he was teaching at Harvard. I think he teaches um, at Columbia right now. Uh, he's not a Christian. He's an atheist. But this is what he says. And this is a famous quote. Quote, the heart of any culture is hope. Hope is the way we overcome the lurking suspicion that all our getting and spending amounts to nothing more than fidgeting while we wait for death. We must imagine some end to life that transcends our own tiny allotment of days and hours if we are to keep at bay the dim, back-of-the-mind suspicion that one may be adrift in an absurd world. End quote. Do you hear what he says? He's not religious, okay, but this is what he says. He says, hope is the way we overcome this lurking suspicion that all our getting and spending amounts to nothing more than just fidgeting while we wait for death. Peter Nichols, in his book, uh, A Place for God, Peter Nicholas says this, in the West, our secular framing of life means there is no supernatural, there's no soul to live on, no afterlife. This life is all there is. Therefore, he quotes Banco and he says, how do we overcome the lurking suspicion that all our getting and spending amounts to fidgeting while we death? And this is what Nicholas says. He says, the truth is, we either expend a great deal of energy seeking to avoid death, or we surround it with vague but well-meaning platitudes that lack any real substance of hope. End quote. Tim Keller, New York's famous pastor, says this, quote, the average New Yorker has no belief in an ultimate future, in anything like the Christian belief. The average New Yorker, he says, says this, I don't care or I don't know if there's a God, and as far as I know, when you die, that is it. I don't know there's any afterlife, but I believe in human life. I believe that some things are right and wrong. I believe in working for justice. And then he goes on to say, he says this, even if in your head you don't admit the absolute inconsistency of saying such a thing, even if intellectually you refuse to see how completely inconsistent, how wrong, and how silly that is to say, the reality of what you believe about the ultimate future will penetrate you. 
It will infiltrate your life. It will infuse your heart. Eventually, if not now, later, there will be a weariness. There will be a meaninglessness that will just slowly creep through you, and you won't know why. And he says later, do you know why? It's because you have no hope. We need hope. Every culture had hope, has hope. It was religion, then it was society and people, now it's the self. But guess what culture has the hardest time living by hope? It's the secular culture. And it's the Western culture, right? We need hope, ultimate hope. Now, how do we get it? When you look at Hebrews 11, it's kind of like uh, a family picture book. There are these snapshots of faith uh, of Jewish ancestors, these patriarchs of the Old Testament. They're heroes. Uh, And he does this. He lists all of them to show them how they did it. Hebrews 11 is like looking at the DNA of God's people. And this is a family of faith. And so for the people of God, it's like looking at an old photo album, and we see it all throughout this chapter, different characters, different people, and they're all, guess what, each and every one, if you go back and read it, each and every example, they're all looking forward, and they're looking forward to a better future, better than what they had now. And so Hebrews 11.1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. How did they attain that kind of hope? How did they get this kind of hope in order to persevere where they were in life? And the answer is obvious in verse 1. It's faith. Faith. What does faith do? You say you have faith. When you say you have faith, oftentimes what we mean is, I believe in something. I trust in something. Okay? But it's a little more practical here for the book of Hebrews, all right? It's a little more practical. This is what he says. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Things hoped for, things not seen. Things hoped for, and things not seen. Let's look carefully. Faith in things hoped for. He's not talking about immediate hope. He's talking about ultimate hope. And this is what faith does. First, and we said this last week, faith in things hoped for, which is future, reorients our present in light of that future, the promises that God has made. So the author is telling us that our faith has this future component. Author Philip Yancey put it like this, faith means trusting in advance what will only make sense in reverse. And we see this again and again here in this chapter, that faith takes things that are in the future and makes them real in our hearts. And so it's the vision of that future, that faith in what God is going to do, that begins to sustain you even when you lose things on this earth that are precious to you. When you lose things that you are poor without, when you lose things now that are expensive to you, you can live in light of that future because your faith is in the faithfulness of a God who has made those promises. Faith reorients the present in light of your future. Some of you have lost some people in your life. You have lost loved ones. Maybe you've lost a parent. Um, And you think about that promise, that future hope. It seems so far away. 
It feels infinitely far away. And you're so scared, and maybe you're sad, or maybe you feel alone, or maybe you feel afraid. Maybe you, you, you feel like you're in the deepest pit of despair. You're in the dark. And those promises, that future hope just seems too far. And you have questions, why God, why God, I don't understand. Why chronic pain? Why cancer? Why dementia? Why disease? Why death? The same questions that we have, I think the audience of Hebrews had as well. And they were tempted to give up on their faith. You look at chapter 11. Death is all over this chapter. Death is all over this chapter. And look at verse 13. Here's what's amazing. These all died in faith. These people all died, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That's what Hebrews says in chapter 11. All these people had hope, future hope. They put their faith in God who promised them hope, and yet they all died without having received it in the present. But what the author of Hebrews says this, what did they do? They saw them from afar. They acknowledged them from afar by faith, and it made a difference how they lived now, strangers and exiles on earth, verse 13. Promises of the future determined how they live now. We are inevitably hope-based creatures, and we live determined by what we believe is going to happen later. The future determines now. And Christian hope, even if it's ultimate future hope, by faith in it, becomes a life-changing hope in the present. Okay? Future hope, ultimate hope, and faith in it becomes a life-shaping hope in the present by faith. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not just trying to promote afterlife, okay? I'm not saying, hey, don't worry what you go through in this life. There is an afterlife. And just knowing that there is an afterlife is all the hope you need. That's not what I'm saying, right? That's part of it. That's not the whole thing. Okay, listen to this. Um, Luc Ferry, a French atheist, uh, very famous guy um, in the 1950s, born there and did a lot of work. Not a Christian, right? Um, he argues that modernity and postmodernity and the emergence of secularism in Europe have not killed the search for some meaning an ultimate purpose, or even the idea of God. You would think that because of secularism, like no one wants to think about God, he argues it hasn't erased it. It hasn't removed it. The idea that there must be something out there, their meaning is there. And he's, he asked this question, especially in one of his books, he answers this question, what makes life then meaningful? What makes your life meaningful? You know what he said? Love people, and love. What do you think you're going to be talking about in your last moments? What do you think you'll be thinking about in your last moments? Have you ever talked to someone who's on their last moments in life? They're not saying, oh, man, I, I wish I had done this job. They're not saying, oh, man, I, I wish I had more, more toys. 
the clothes that I bought, the cars that I drove. In their last moments, what do people talk about? It's usually about people. It's, it's usually about love. I wish I spent more time with this person. I'm thankful for their love. It's the most meaningful. And that's what Luke Ferry is trying to say. Do you see? The hope that Christianity is offering freely is not just life after death. But what many sociologists or even Christian sociologists say this, it's not life after death, it's love after death. That's what you really want. What we deeply want is not to live forever, even after we die, but what we deeply want is to experience love without ever parting. And death makes us part. There's a pastor in my presbytery, um, about 10 years older than I am, a great guy, um, retired now, actually, retired early, you know, good for him. But, um, you know, has three kids, but uh, one of his daughters passed away at the age of 11. At the age of 11, because of some disease. I, I don't remember what exactly, but uh, it, it was tough. He was a faithful pastor, serving God, doing church, and his daughter passes away. And he was a mess. He was a wreck. Understandably so, a wreck. Faithful guy, pastor of all things, should know all these things that I'm telling you. Complete mess. Questions everything. Perseveres. What he does every year, because I think it was in 2004 when she passed, every year they visit her grave. He visits his daughter. And he says this. The pain hasn't gone. The pain is, is, is still there. It feels the same. But as he gets older, what he says is this. The hope that he has is that they will be reunited. They'll be reunited. So every year he visits the grave, and every year he's reminded of the pain of loss, but every year he reminds himself of the hope that they will be reunited that they will not part. Love without parting. Okay? Faith is in the hope. Hope of the future affects how he lives in the present. Faith in not seen, the invisible, okay? Not just what we hope for, but in things that we don't see, the invisible. We see this throughout the text. Faith is the conviction of not seeing. That's what verse 1 says. It means you have faith in things that you can't see. And so in verse 8, you see that Abraham went out knowing not knowing where he was going to go. He didn't know. He didn't see. Moses, verse 26, he, he chose the reproach of Christ over the pleasures of sin because by faith, he could see, he could see considered it greater wealth, what Christ has. But he didn't see it. You see this all over the passage. Faith means believing what you don't see. Now, let me just be very clear here. It isn't just Christians who have faith. Non-Christians have faith, too. Non-Christians have faith in what they don't see. They just don't realize it. But here in our passage, what you see is all the promise of God that they couldn't see. And it's the same with us. We live by faith in things that we don't see. You are fully forgiven. You can't see that. You're robed in Jesus' righteousness by faith. You don't see that. There's no more condemnation for you. You don't see that all the time. You're a beloved child of God. You're clean from all your uncleanness. You have a new heart, a new spirit within you. That's what God says, but you don't see it. You don't even feel that sometimes. 
You're rejoiced over by singing. You're being renewed in your inner being, Paul says. You have the smile of God. You have the intercessory prayers of Jesus Christ. You have the Spirit helping you in weakness. None of it you can see. You have the hope of glory. You will see God, and he will keep your feet from stumbling. He's with you in the power of the Spirit, and he will be with you till the end of the age, and you will be with him now and forevermore. Promises we believe but you can't see. Faith in the invisible. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.18, that's why we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So by faith, through faith, we access the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. It takes faith. That's how we get it, okay? Let me ask you a question now. Do you have this faith today? If not, how do you get it? John Calvin put it this way, quote, faith is a firm and certain confidence of God's benevolence towards you, end quote. Faith is a firm and certain confidence that God loves you. Faith is being able to say with the psalmist in chapter 56, this I know that God is for me. This I know that God is for me. Not based on my usefulness, not based on my productivity, not based on my performance or my beauty or my attraction, but this I know that God is for me. That's faith. Romans 8.31, if God is for me, who can be against me? How do you know that's for you? How do you know God is for you? And the answer Paul says in Romans 5, 8, he demonstrated his own love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for you. Christ died for you. This I know, God is for me. How do I know? I look at the cross. For me, right? Hebrews 11, all people about faith. But there's one person that he finishes this, I guess, discourse and talks about more. And it goes from Hebrews 11 all the way into chapter 12, verse 1. There's one person, one hero of the Old Testament that he ends with, and that's Jesus Christ himself. Remember this verse in Hebrews chapter 12? He's the ultimate person of faith. Let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. How? who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see this? All these people here, this is how they did it, right? They had a future promise. They had a hope in God. How did they access it? They had faith in God. How did they know? They believed God was for us. How did they know? Because they looked at the cross, and he goes over, 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 and over again, all these people who did it. This is how they did it. And then he ends with the one person that also did it. The author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set in the future, therefore endured the present. That Jesus' future is joy, that's what he says. And it shaped his life in the presence and how he would live. And that's why he endured the cross. What's his joy? What's his future? 
The answer is you. To be with you and you with him to the glory of his Father, love without part. For the joy of the future, he endured his present. This I know, God is for me. If you don't have this faith, look, it's like a toddler. All they do is chase after you with hands wide open. <laughs> gimme, 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 gimme. They got nothing to offer. They've got everything to receive. They're banking on their parent to provide. That's what faith is. Not based on your beauty, not based on your attraction, not based on your productivity, not based on your performance, not based on your genetics or your lineage. Completely dependent and say, Lord, please give me on Jesus Christ and his work. That's faith in Jesus Christ. And if you don't have it, that's your invitation. Okay, now let me end with this last application. How does then, if you have this faith, you already have this faith, you, you do, but how does the faith of Hebrews 11 become then real? How does this hope then become real to me? How does, how does this assurance and conviction I don't see become real to me today? This is what's interesting, okay? In this verse, verse 1, uh, we read that faith deals with things that are future, things we hope for, things that are unseen, things we don't see. However, if you are looking at the original language, it's also possible to translate this. Faith is not just things we hope for. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Or another translation would be this. Faith is what gives substance to our hopes. If you translate like this, this is what he's defining faith. It's very practical. He suggests that what we hope for becomes real and substantial when we exercise our faith, the reality of what we hope for is confirmed in us, in our experience, when we live by the faith in God's promises. So here's a functional definition of faith, okay? It's not just belief in something or trust in something. Uh, Gerhardus Voss, an author who's passed away a long time ago, says that describes faith this way, quote, faith is the organ of apprehension of unseen and future realities, giving access to and contact with another world. Faith is the hand stretched out through vast distance of space and time, whereby the Christian draws to himself the things that are far beyond, so they become actual to him. Does that make sense? How do I make faith real? How do I make this, this hope real in my life? You use faith, but what's faith? You reach out and you make it actual to you. Remember the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread, right? Give us today tomorrow's bread. Give us a taste of heaven. What does that look like then? In heaven, you are completely forgiven, completely righteous. That's the promise. The hope then I have now is this. How do I live by faith? I forgive others. I forgive others. And I want to live righteously. In heaven, enemies of God are now his friends, and one day we will all be friends in heaven. That's what his promise is. How do I make that real by now? How do I make it real by faith right now? Love your enemies. Love your enemies. 
One day, the poor, even the poorest, will be made rich. How do I make that real now? By faith. Bless the poor. Feed, clothe, care. In heaven, the judge, we will meet the judge, the ultimate judge. But the thing is, he's not angry. He's declared you innocent by faith. How do I make that real in my life? By faith, do not judge. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. You are promised every spiritual blessing which will never fade. How do I make that real in my life? By faith, I trust in that promise. Therefore, don't store up treasures on earth where moss and rust destroy. One day, complete joy, complete peace, complete love, no more sickness, no more death, no more pain or suffering, complete love to the utmost. How do I make that real in my life now? By faith, endurance, long-suffering, and hope in the midst of hard things in this world. Your hope in the future will shape how you live in the present. And so I pray, and therefore that God would increase your faith in the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you so much for the hope that you give. And for many of us, uh, these things seem so far away and so lofty that uh, we, we lose touch. But I pray, Lord, uh, if the, as we get older, as we continue in life, as we experience more, uh, these things become more and more prominent in our thoughts, in our minds, in our hearts. If not now, and certainly later. Prepare our hearts. Prepare our minds with the things that you give us now. Keep us from procrastinating the inevitable. Help us to see that even now these things can be experienced by faith as we live them out in a world that desperately needs to hear about hope. Not just for our children, not just for our communities and, and country and societies, but also the world. So give us the faith. Help us to reach out to the promises that you've given and make them real in our hearts and practical in our lives and live out the faith that you give so that others might receive the hope that you offer. Give us that strength to do that. In the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our hardships, in the midst of our, what seems like, inevitable pain and suffering, we pray that you be our only source of strength and hope and joy. And we pray that you would open our minds to understand and our hearts to receive soon if not later. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.